Okay, Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one to, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For, Isra for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have heard out of, out of, out my, sorry, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Well, let's bow in prayer. Uh, gracious Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in your word. And we thank you for uh, the opportunity we have now to consider your word more clearly and more deeply. Uh, we do pray for the children, that they too would be established in uh, their faith in the Lord Jesus through the hearing of his word. And we ask now that by your spirit that you would be opening up our minds and our hearts, uh, that we would uh, be those who uh, know who you are, what you've done for us and how we ought to respond in our lives. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, some Jewish friends from Israel um, invited Cassie and myself to their home in order to uh, celebrate the Passover with them. And uh, that was a good experience for us Gentiles, us non-Jews, to be able to do that. And if you can imagine, the family table uh, was uh, set up and there was a variety of foods 
which were served at different times during the course of the, uh, of the meal, uh, including um, bitter herbs and, of course, the Passover lamb, the, uh, the roast lamb. Uh, this was interspersed with readings from the law, which were read to us in Hebrew and were explained to us uh, in English and so on. It was a proper Passover meal, uh, headed up by the, uh, the husband and the father, uh, and he did the job properly. He did it well. As Gentile Christians, we, um, we found that uh, not only did we understand the Passover, but we also believed it with all of our heart. Um, and yet... Our Jewish host didn't, uh, as he would read the scriptures to us, as he would lead in prayer, as he would explain the Passover to us. Uh, he would uh, uh, periodically say, of course, we don't believe any of this, um, that it's just our tradition, it's just our culture, and it's our, our heritage. And so he was zealous for his heritage, but he was not zealous for God, uh, a secular Jew in that sense. And he, he, of course, would not be alone in that. There'd be many Jews who would practice these traditions simply as a matter of culture and heritage uh, without necessarily believing them to be true. Um, on the other hand, of course, there are many non-Christian Jews for whom the scriptures and their faith uh, do have profound and heartfelt significance. And the reason for that is because they are zealous for God. Um, and this, as you would expect, was also the, the case during the time of the New Testament, during the ministry of Jesus and the ministries of the apostles. There were many, many Jews who were genuine and sincere in their zeal for God. Now, of course, I'm not necessarily talking about the, those religious leaders who we read about in the Gospels who were uh, zealous primarily for their prestige and their status. Um, but there were many Jews who, like Paul himself as Saul, uh, before he became a Christian, uh, who, uh, when Paul was actually very deeply zealous uh, for the things of God, Paul talks about his own background in Philippians where he says that, um, uh, you know, I was, in terms of my credentials, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, I was impeccable. Um, I had a great zeal for God, uh, but Paul's zeal was a misplaced zeal. A misplaced seal. And so now, um, as Paul has become a Christian, uh, what was his attitude towards his fellow Jews who had not yet embraced the Messiah? Well, uh, I remember a lady spoke to me a couple of years ago, and she was a, an elderly lady, in, well, not elderly, she was. Uh, She's in her 70s. I don't know if that's... That's not elderly. No. She's in her 70s. And she'd been uh, coming to church all her life uh, since year dot. But she told me it was only a few years 
prior to when she was talking to me that she'd actually become a Christian. I said, what? You've been in church all year? She said, yeah, I was a churchgoer. I always trusted in my own efforts in order to get to heaven, but uh, she shared with me that it had only been the last few years that she'd actually um, transferred her trust from herself and her own good works uh, onto trusting in Jesus as her Lord and her Saviour. And as she was reflecting on other people, um, other churchgoers, uh, she said, and she did so with love in her heart, that they reminded her of herself before she became a Christian and her desire was for their salvation. Now, in Romans chapter 10, which we're looking at today, it's that kind of love, it's that kind of desire that Paul had for his fellow Jews who had not yet embraced the Messiah. Um, in Romans chapter 10, um, we, we see this in verses 1 through to 3. Can I just read that for you? Verses 1 to 3. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's his heart's desire. That's his prayer. He's not judgmental. He wants them to be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, Paul had his critics amongst the Jews. There were uh, some Jews who um, took the view that uh, Paul had given up on his heritage, that he had abandoned his own people, and that, by the way, is a criticism that's levelled against Jews today when they embrace Christ. I have Jewish friends who have um, put their trust in Christ and have been viewed by their family as having actually walked away from their identity, walked away from their families. Um, and for Paul, it was especially acute because not only had he embraced Christ um, as Messiah... But he had uh, he spent much of his time, most of his time, preaching and ministering to to Gentiles, and so this uh, view that Paul has abandoned his own people um, uh, was a critique of him. Now, secondly, Paul was accused of abandoning God's law because he taught that obeying God's law was not necessary for salvation. And we see that the big ticket item in the New Testament epistles was the issue of uh, circumcision and food laws, that you didn't need to be circumcised, you didn't need to obey the food laws in order to be in a right relationship with God. And so here's the critique of Paul. And one of the reasons that he wrote to the church in Rome was to rebut these criticisms. And that's a great thing that he did that because in so doing... It means that you and I, we actually get a clearer and a more, um, a deeper and a more profound understanding of the Old Testament and the purpose of the law. Now, Romans chapter 10 is, in some ways, I think it's a, it's a challenging passage for us as, as uh, uh, I take it we're 
vast majority of us here are Gentiles. Um, and it's, it's a very challenging passage for, for Gentiles to understand because although Paul is writing to the church in Rome that has, is comprised of, of Gentiles and Jews, uh, he's dealing with these, these very Jewish criticisms. And so he's kind of got one eye uh, on his Jewish critics and he's wanting to answer their criticisms in a way that uh, is going to be helpful for them. And so although he could say things uh, more directly in ways which we would more directly understand, uh, his arguments throughout chapter 10 uh, come entirely from the Old Testament because he's got, this eye, got one eye on his Jewish critics. And the big issue is this. How can a sinful person be righteous in God's sight? That's always the big issue, isn't it? How can a sinful person be righteous in God's sight? And so having claimed in verse 3 that the Jews have a misguided zeal, that they've tried to establish their own righteousness, but they've not submitted to God's righteousness, he goes on to say in verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. See, that, that's a key verse. Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everybody who believes. Now, what does it mean? Let me say firstly what it doesn't mean. Uh, we know from other parts of the scripture it doesn't mean that uh, Christ has abolished the law. Uh, that's not what it means. But what does it mean? In what sense is Christ the end of the law? I think there are two ways we can understand this. Um, firstly, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Um, when you think about the, the promises to Abraham, the, the Passover, the temple system with the priests and sacrifices, uh, the, the promised land, uh, these and other... Um, things which we see established in the Old Testament, are shadows of a greater reality uh, which is found in Christ. That Christ uh, fulfills the promises to Abraham, that Christ uh, fulfills the Passover, that Christ fulfills the, uh, the, the, the sacrificial system. He is the great high priest, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and so on. Uh, more than that, we see also in the prophecies in the Old Testament that uh, the prophecies point uh, to Jesus. And so that uh, Christ is woven throughout the entirety of the law and the prophets and the writings, the whole of the Old Testament. Now, uh, when Cassie and myself ate the Passover with our Jewish friends, we it was for this reason that we understood the meaning of the Passover. Uh, we understood that uh, God's people in Egypt had shed the blood of a lamb. We understood that the, uh, those households that, uh, were, that where the door frames were covered with the blood of the lamb, that the, the judging spirit of God passed over those households. Uh, we understood that God's people had been rescued out of slavery 
and that there was a, a fresh beginning, a, a new start of trusting and loving and serving God in God's promised land, uh, we understood those things at one level, but we understood also that what happened in Egypt was, was a foreshadowing of God's ultimate saving reality of Christ's death on the cross, of his resurrection, of, of heaven. And I've got to tell you, sitting down there at the Passover meal, hearing about all these promises from the scriptures, sharing in the Lamb, how much do you reckon I wanted to speak up and say, hey, let me tell you about how all of this is fulfilled? <laughs> I really wanted to do that, but um, uh, was aim unable to do so in the context. Now, secondly, so... We see that Christ is woven throughout the whole of the scriptures and that, in that sense Christ, it can be argued, is the end of the law. But secondly, and I think this is of particular uh, application here in Romans chapter 10 and throughout Romans, secondly we can understand uh, that Christ is the end of the law in terms of that the requirements of the law are perfectly fulfilled in Christ. You see, what does Moses say about righteousness? Have a look at verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by law. And here he quotes from Leviticus saying, The man who does these things will live by them. So, if you want to be righteous in God's sight um, through the law, what do you need to do? You need to... Obey the law, don't you? How much of it do you think you need to obey? You need to obey all of it, don't you? Um, not, and not just outwardly, not, but remember what, how Jesus summarised the law? That, you know, that uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. How do you think Israel went on that front? Not real good. How are you going on that front? It's a tough gig, isn't it? Have you always put God first in your life? Always love your neighbour? No. I mean, that's a hopeless situation. That's a dreadful situation to be in. Um, and, 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 and in that sense, uh, we, we, we know that we can't be declared righteous by doing the law but because Jesus uh, has faultlessly obeyed God's law and he has done so from the heart even uh, unto death upon a cross uh, he has actually fulfilled what Moses says here in Leviticus that the person the man who does these things will live by them and in that sense, Jesus is the end of the law. His perfect obedience has fulfilled that. And he's done that so that by his death on a cross, that a righteous status is available to us, not by law, but by faith, by trusting in him. Now, this too is found in the law of Moses. Have a look at uh, verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, 
who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. Um, and you read that and you think to yourself, what on earth is Paul on about there? Well, what he's on about here is he's, he's quoting from Moses. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, he's got one eye on his Jewish critics here. He's wanting to prove to them from the Old Testament law what he's saying. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, the context there is that the whole of Israel, they've been through the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. They are now um, camped out at the, uh, upon the, the plains of Moab. Uh, the Jordan River is before them and beyond that is Canaan, the promised land. And soon under Joshua, uh, as we saw in the kids' song, they would be strong and courageous. <laughs> and uh, under God's sovereign care, they would uh, go across the, the Jordan River and they would enter into Canaan and uh, establish themselves there. And so on the brink of that, Moses, who would not join them in Canaan, but Moses, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, gave them... Uh, laws from God so that if they wanted to live under God's blessing in God's land all that they needed to do was to obey God and to obey his laws that's what Deuteronomy 30 is all about and what he's saying in Deuteronomy 30 is that uh, God's life-giving word was being handed to them uh, you, you don't actually have to go up to heaven to get it because here it is, Moses says, here it is, I'm giving you the words of life. You don't have to go across the sea or dive down into the bottom of the sea or into the abyss and come, come up with it. Here it is, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving God's word, he says. Uh, the word is very near to you. Uh, it is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. That's Deuteronomy 30. Now, isn't God gracious? I mean, you cannot separate God from his word. God is his word. And God had drawn close to Israel, revealing himself to them through his word, which they can receive in their hearts, which they can speak uh, in, with their mouths. Uh, it's handed to them. God has drawn near to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Well, here Paul says that this also points us to Jesus. Uh, because in verse 6 he points out that we, we don't need to ascend to heaven to receive God's word. And why? He said, well, that would be to bring Christ down. And that's already happened. Uh, nor does he say that we need to descend to the deep in order to get God's word, because that would be to bring Christ up from the dead. Um, Christ has died. He has been buried. 
and he has already been raised from the dead. You see, God has drawn near to us and he has done so in the person of his son, Jesus. He's done so in the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus came from heaven to, uh, to be with us. And he's done so in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As the Apostle John puts it, that the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you want to be righteous in the sight of God? Then don't trust in your own goodness. Place your trust, your faith, in the one whose obedience to the law was perfect and who has drawn near to you. Um, Therefore, says Paul in verse 8, This is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And he goes on in verse 9 to say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now, you know, to say that Jesus is Lord... In verse 9, that's a very significant thing. That is absolutely huge. Because it's saying that, um, that Jesus possesses all of the attributes of God. That God's greatness, that God's holiness, that God's authority, that God's power, that God's majesty, that, that, that is embedded in Jesus. That Jesus is Lord. And if he is all of those things, then who is he? He's God. God in the flesh. God with us, Emmanuel. Now, notice also that Paul focuses on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that is because it is the resurrection of Jesus which proves that his sacrifice was sufficient. It proves that he was perfectly obedient to the law, that in him all of the righteous requirements of the law have been met, that he is the end of the law, and that through his death that uh, he's actually paid for our sins sufficiently, perfectly. And the resurrection is the proof of that, that God has accepted his sacrifice. So, the question then is, who has he done this for? Now, remember in the opening chapters of Romans that <clears throat> the big thing that Paul was um, at pains to, uh, to be explaining uh, is that um, all people have sinned. In Romans 1, uh, he talks about the, the sin of the Gentiles, that although they knew God, they neither glorified him, but exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like you know, man and reptiles and animals and birds and so on. Um, and that they've, God has given them over to the, their, their sinful nature. Uh, he's shown that the, the Gentiles are, have all sinned. But he goes on to say uh, that the Jews have all sinned as well. Um, and he proves that. And it culminates in chapter 3, where he says that there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, but 
that there is no difference between Jew or Greek in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if all have sinned, then who needs to be saved? All need to be saved. Jews and Gentiles. Verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, uh, for there is no difference uh, between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And guess what? This is actually what the Old Testament teaches. Uh, In verse 13, uh, Paul cites from the the prophet Joel, uh, saying that uh, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just Jews, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the backstory to this is that Paul is defending the fact of his ministry, his mission to Gentiles. He's defending the fact that he reaches out to Gentiles. And uh, he would also be mindful that part of the reason he's writing the church to the letter in, to the church in Rome is that he's planning to visit Rome as a stopover on the way to Spain because he wants to take the gospel further westward than it's ever been uh, into Spain. Didn't get there, didn't get there because he was arrested and put on trial and, and, and died, but that was his plan. Um, how does he defend this mission? Well, again, it's all in the Old Testament. And so in verses 14 and, to, and 15, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah had a, a mission. He had a message that he needed to preach to Jews who were in exile in Babylon. And it was a message that God would liberate them and would bring them back into the promised land. Um, and, uh, and Paul takes that and he applies it to, to himself and to his own ministry. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? Um, You've got Jews and you've got Gentiles that are living not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but all over the ancient world. Uh, How could Jews and Gentiles spread throughout the world? How could they call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved? Well, only if someone goes and tells them about Jesus. Make sense? And that's why Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why he wanted to visit Spain. It's why countless Christians uh, throughout the millennia have uh, left the comfort and the security and the peace of their homes uh, in order to take the gospel uh, to places where Christ is not known, to different lands, different cultures, different peoples, uh, like many places in our world still today. And increasingly, I'd add uh, Australia. I put that on the list. And uh, we've got a great mission here to reach out to those who don't know Christ. And it's so interesting to see missionaries coming from other countries 
to start evangelising Australia. One of the Jewish criticisms of Paul's ministry is that uh, it was mostly Gentiles who responded and not Jews. And that's a criticism because people would say, well, you know, the Jews, they're the experts on God (laughs) and uh, if they're not listening to his message, then maybe his message doesn't have credibility. The experts aren't believing it. It's only those ignorant Gentiles that are believing it. And so how does Paul respond to this? Well, we're just going to whip through verses 16 to 21. I just want to say quickly that he makes three points. um, Briefly, he makes three points. First of all, in verse 16, he acknowledges that this is in fact true. He says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news, but he roots his answer in the Old Testament because he says it's not only uh, in our ministry... It was also true for Isaiah. So that's something that the Old Testament would lead us to expect that not all of the Jews are going to respond to God's word. Secondly, in verse 18, he asks, well, is it because they didn't hear the gospel? And the answer to that question is no. They have certainly heard the gospel um, because the good news has gone out into all of the, all of the earth. And here again, he's... Uh, Uh, quoting the Old Testament, but he can say it's true of the Christians because Peter and the other apostles preached first in Jerusalem. And then even when they went out to the Gentile world, they'll go first to the synagogue to reach the Jews. And it was uh, only after that that they would actually turn to the Gentiles. So is it because they haven't heard the gospel? No, they have heard the gospel. And so thirdly, in verses 19 down through to 21, He asks, well, is it because they didn't understand the gospel? And again, quoting from Old Testament passages, uh, Paul says that the real issue is not that they didn't understand. The real issue is that they're envious and they're angry. They don't like the fact that God's salvation is being offered to Gentiles. Who's an Old Testament character who didn't like the fact that God's salvation was being offered to the Gentiles. Can anyone remember? Think about Wales and Jonah. Yeah, I don't want to go to those Ninevites. You know, if I go to the Ninevites and tell them about God, they might believe. Wouldn't want that. Uh, And this is how Paul is explaining the antagonism of the Jews, is that they actually are envious, that they don't want Gentiles to have a relationship with God. And he quotes from Moses, firstly, in verse 19. And then in verse 20, he quotes from Isaiah, the two big hitters of the Old Testament. <laughs> Moses, who wrote the, you know, the law, and Isaiah, the great 8th century prophet. Um, these guys actually back up what Paul says. You see what he's doing? He's got his one eye on his Jewish critics and he's explaining to them from the scriptures his position on the gospel and on his ministry to Gentiles. I was about to check check in at Sydney Airport one day uh, when a young man asked to borrow my pen. You know how it is when you've got to depart and they've got all these departure cards and you can't find a pen? He asked if he could borrow my pen. And we got talking. He was Jewish. 
young guy, he was a backpacker from Israel, been in Australia for a few months, was heading back home. And so we got talking about what being Jewish meant for him. It was a lovely conversation and he seemed grateful that I, as a Gentile, was, was even interested uh, and that I knew something about the things which he was talking about, about the law, about the important times in the Jewish calendar, such as Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, um, the Passover, um, Hanukkah, the Festival of Purim and so on. And uh, it warmed his heart that he was a, a Gentile who was actually interested and had a little bit of knowledge of these things, which we as Christians can have, can't we? Um, and you know what, I would have loved to have shared with him something about the one who is actually the end of the law, the one who has fulfilled the law, and the one who is the atonement, and the one uh, through whom the Passover of God's judgment occurs. I would have loved to have shared with him those things. But alas, we both had planes to catch. We didn't quite get to that point in the conversation. <laughs> but the reason I would have loved to have shared with him about those things is because of verse 17. Verse 17, consequently, says Paul, faith comes from hearing. From hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ, through the word of Christ. We don't often get the privilege of blessing Jewish people with the, um, the great news of the gospel. Uh, we should pray for that, and particularly when we look at chapter 11 next week. But within our community, even within our churches, there are people who don't trust in Christ for their salvation. There are some people I've noted in churches who actually trust in their spiritual experiences for their salvation. And I, I've talked to them about this and they talk a lot about their spiritual experiences but they're not actually quite trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. So it's an interesting thing. Um, but uh, we, we will sometimes meet up with people who have this vague idea that it's, what their, it's their own goodness which counts. And these might be people that we meet um, outside of the church, in our workplaces, uh, in our families and so on. There might even be people who we meet inside church and, and praise God that they're coming along to church. Praise God for that. Uh, we need to be both gracious and clear. Uh, we need to be gracious in getting alongside people and helping them to see, see the, um, the hopelessness of that position and the great liberty and freedom that they can experience through transferring their trust from themselves onto Christ. We need to dismantle that view and show them the better way and pointing them to the one uh, who is the end of the law, the one in whom God has drawn near to us, 
the one who died and rose again. For as Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. May they be our feet. May they be our words of good news. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ that he is indeed the end of the law. And we thank you that in his incarnation and in his resurrection that you have drawn near to us. That he is uh, in our hearts and on our lips. Father, we uh, pray that that uh, great message of salvation in Christ alone would, uh, would spread out throughout our world and uh, that many more people would come to know Jesus and that your kingdom would grow. We pray for ourselves, Lord God. Lord, uh, forbid that we should be putting our trust in ourselves. May we trust in Christ and in him alone. And Father, give us the words to speak when we have opportunity to share with others, to show them the better way, the true way, the way which you have provided the way of your righteousness in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.